Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Essentials Podcast. I'm Maddie Flint, and I'm here to provide you with thought-provoking science, history, art, language, cognition, and culture-related content that is educational and exciting. In this episode, I'm going to give out some tips that are super helpful for success in college classes. I'm just using that in general because I'm currently a junior in college, but you can apply these same techniques for any level of education you're at, whether it's high school, middle school, maybe even graduate school. I don't know. I'm not there yet. I'll have to see what techniques work for that eventually and any other year of college or your university. I really wish that I had known how to apply some of these tips in high school primarily because back then I was a huge workaholic and I was an all-season athlete, I was in a ton of clubs, and I procrastinated a lot. And test-taking sometimes stressed me out so much that my mind would completely go blank and I wouldn't even be able to retain all the information that I knew I understood before actually going into the testing site. Even though I was a good student, I had good grades, I was a sporadic studier, and when you get to higher education, like college, you can be sporadic to a point. So here are the things that helped me not only achieve high grades, but also helped me to shape a better study routine that allows for the type of memory retention that you need to succeed. These tips are not going to come to you in any specific order, like the last one being the most helpful or whatever. They're all super helpful, and we're going to get right into it. Starting with sitting in the front rows. I know that may sound intimidating. Maybe you want to sleep and you don't want your teacher to watch you sleeping or um, you're zoning out and you don't want them to know you're not paying attention. But if you really want to do well in a class, sitting in the front row helps so much, especially if you wear glasses like I do. I cannot see at all once I get to a certain distance away from the smart board or the projector. I can't see. So save yourself the trouble. Don't be scared sit right in the front row. You can hear your professor or your teacher more clearly. You can see everything they're presenting on the board or the screen in front of you. And it feels a little bit more comforting to ask them a question when you're right in front of them than it does when you're kind of raising your hand awkwardly from the back of the room and trying to get them to hear you. And maybe it's a big room, so... It's going to take some shouting and you don't want to shout in front of a bunch of other kids. If you sit in the front, you won't have that type of experience when you're just trying to do something simple like ask a question. And your teachers will see your bright and smiling face every morning and they'll know that you come to class regularly and they'll be able to tell that you're a good student. The next thing, don't write everything down. I know a lot of really great friends who did this. I did this for a while just because we didn't want to miss any information that might be helpful for exams or quizzes or um, further material that we would need for the rest of the class. I feel like the number one con to that is that you're going to give yourself hand cramps and tire those muscles out, especially if you have a long class. And number two, that can be really overwhelming because you can miss out on really important concepts that are not necessarily from a huge paragraph of text. Maybe it's just one simple relationship between two things and you don't need to have all that text to understand it, but your mind is being bogged down with the task of writing and you could essentially wind up missing the main points of the lecture or of the discussion because you're focusing on trying to write down every single word. Instead of doing that, there are other ways to write down meaningful things that you heard in class without trying to write down every single word. So there are actually a couple of note-taking techniques that can be super helpful for summarizing information in a short amount of time because essentially that's what you need to do is summarize. 
college mainly is about summarizing your two-hour lectures. What are the key takeaways and can you reiterate those takeaways when it comes to tests or exams? For those note-taking techniques, we have the mapping method, and that is for people who are a little bit more visual and it helps you to organize your class notes in a way that's really going to help you visualize the relationships between the topics that you're being presented with. So you'll start notes by putting the main topic right in the middle of the page, maybe. And then branching off the main topic, you could write a heading for each of the subtopics. And then underneath those, you could just jot a few really important things down about each of those subtopics. But this way, you'll be able to make an actual map of all the things that are being thrown at you. There's also the sentence method, which I've recently started doing, and so far I found it to be really helpful. So with this method, you're just going to be jotting down all the main points, but in sentence form. This style of note-taking is going to let you be able to write down a lot of material relatively quickly, so it's really great for fast-paced lessons where a lot of information is being covered. And when you're done, you're going to be able to tell which things you need to focus on, and if you're doing it in your own words, that also helps for better understanding. You're not just copying down someone else's words because maybe you don't fully understand the terminology they're using. So if you write it in a way that you understand, you'll be able to grasp the concept better. And with this, the things that you write down are going to be the things that your teacher is really emphasizing. So if there's something specifically that they're taking a really long time to go over, which means they probably want everybody to focus on it because they'll probably test you on it, that is the something that you should write down in that sentence. And then when they switch topics, switch to a new sentence. Okay, so now you have those two techniques. But what if your main issue is that you struggle with summarizing material because you're worried that you'll omit important information? If this is the challenging part for you, don't worry, because there are a lot of ways to improve your skills at summarizing. One, for example, is the first, then finally method. And this technique is going to help students to summarize events in chronological order. So say you're doing something that's kind of a historical lesson and you need to know the origin and then what it led to. The three words represent the beginning, main action, and conclusion of the story. When you write your heading first, this is where you'll want to write down the main event or the main action that prompted the next things to happen. Then you'll have your then heading, and underneath that you'll want to write down all the key details that took place during the event or action. And then in your third heading, which is finally, this is where you'll write down the results of the event or action that took place. And I also want to give you guys another method, a way to help build your skills in summarizing. And this one is a little bit different than the other one because this is for people who learn best when they can explain something to another person. Because when you're talking about it, you do have to take into account rhetoric of speaking. What is it that the, the person needs to understand about what you're saying in order for you to concisely get your point across? So when you're speaking about something to somebody else, you are kind of subconsciously summarizing everything like giving someone the gist of the story. You're not going to be retelling every single detail where you learned the story from. You just want to summarize it. And a great way to do this is to find somebody who you're very comfortable talking to or who you enjoy talking to, who's fun to strike up conversations with, like a classmate, a friend, a family member, and talk to them about what it is you learned. Maybe give yourself a time limit. And you can practice summarizing this on a regular basis. And it's pretty quick. Okay, now you guys have material to work with on summarizing, note-taking, and you know not to write everything down that's 
spoken to you in a lecture. So the next point is not to be afraid of exams because it feels like a built-in part of schooling to get nervous when it's time for exams and tests. It always has been, probably for centuries, and fear stems from many things. The main one probably being the consequences of a bad test result because you're worried about your parents and what they're going to say when they see your report card and all that stuff. And we all focus on our grades as many things rely on them, especially in regards to the type of job or career you're planning on acquiring. But you shouldn't come into a test site afraid that you're going to do poorly or afraid of the possibility that you might do worse than you want it to do because this can alter your mood and put you into a bad mindset. Fear also has a lot of biopsychological effects on your body. I won't go into full detail on what some of those biopsychological pathways are, but I will just mention how fear can impact our thinking. Once those fear pathways are ramped up in the brain, you're going to start thinking a little bit more irrationally. And this is because of the relationship that the brain has with the amygdala. This is a small section of the brain that's almond-shaped that is hugely involved in processing intense emotions like anger, fear, and pleasure. So now that the signaling is going to the amygdala instead of more rational processing, you're not going to be able to think the way that you could before you got scared. This is your brain in an overactive state or the amygdala hijack. And while you're functioning under these emotionally negative conditions, everything that you perceive while you're under these conditions is also going to be perceived as a threat or as something negative. So that was just a little blurb of your brain on fear. So while fear is that thing that is mobilizing the emotional response and is the actual object that we're afraid of, anxiety is the thing that kind of pushes our fear down even deeper. Being in an anxious state is basically being frozen with the feeling of fear in an environment that isn't actually threatening us. It's just that there is some kind of fear associated with that setting, which is really important, that's triggering that anxiety. And I'm talking about this because of performance anxiety. So I wanted to set you guys up with just a little bit of background on fear and how that relates to anxiety um, biopsychologically. And now we can kind of go through performance anxiety and just talk about what that is. A really good and clear and thorough definition of this comes from the American Psychological Association, and it states that performance anxiety is the apprehension and fear of the consequences of being unable to perform a task or of performing it at a level that will raise expectations of even better task achievement. Test anxiety is a common example of performance anxiety, so that's just a type of performance anxiety. Other examples may include a fear of public speaking, participating in classes or meetings, maybe playing a musical instrument in public, or eating in public. If the fear associated with the performance anxiety is focused on negative evaluation by others, embarrassment or humiliation, the anxiety may be classified as a social phobia. And the symptoms that arise among an onset of this type of anxiety are caused by your sympathetic nervous system. So you can expect those symptoms to be sweaty palms, a racing pulse, nausea, a trembling voice. Maybe you get shaky. Maybe it's your hands that are shaky. You might stammer a little bit more. There are many different symptoms of performance anxiety. And for a lot of students, test anxiety can be really, really challenging to work through. And public schools don't usually put a huge premium on addressing issues like this because 
The public school system is one size fits all. Obviously, we know that one size does not fit all, and there are students who find test taking to be a struggle because of this test anxiety that they have. And the majority of the time, these students understand the concepts, they're familiar with the material, they're doing really well in class, but it's the test site that induces the anxiety. I've experienced that many times throughout my high school and college education, and we want to be able to decrease that anxiety and kind of stop it in its tracks so it doesn't freeze you up and get you to the point where you can't remember anything that you put in that hard work to remember. There are a lot of different ways to reduce this anxiety that exists out there. Of course, everybody will be different, so the ones that may work for one person may not work for another, and that's okay because there's enough out there for everybody to find something that works for them. Some kind of general pointers are to create a study environment, and this is kind of a planning thing, that allows you to focus on your studies undisturbed. Remove all your distractions, put your phone away, whatever it is that you have to do, to create a space that you enjoy studying in. Time management is also another kind of planning method, and this helps for before all of your exams. You could write out which tasks are going to be more challenging to you or that you might believe might be more challenging and try to set aside enough time for those subjects because life is very demanding and it can be really easy to get overwhelmed. So as long as you're staying on top of your scheduling, you can stay on top of that anxiety. And then during the exams, and this is something that I do very frequently, probably on every exam, is to just skip questions that I'm having trouble understanding upon the first glance especially if they're in the beginning of the exam because you've just sat down, you're trying to orient yourself, and it can be time-consuming to just stare at one question for a long time and not know how to answer it when all the questions may be worth the exact same amount of points. So scroll through, forget it, work on it at the end. Maybe there will be other tips that jog your memory and get your active recall going faster that are in the other questions that you can use to help yourself answer the one question you were stuck on. But if you wait and you take up all that time just looking at that question, you're going to run out of time to answer questions that maybe would have come a lot easier to you if you had seen them first. And also just tell yourself, you know this material. If you've been studying for weeks or days or even just intensely for just a few nights before the exam, this is content that is a little bit familiar at least to you. And some other ways to kind of make exams less terrifying is to have more fun with them. For example, try to treat the test or exam like a fun trivia game. Try to study for your exam like you're training to win Jeopardy. Exam day is just trivia day. It's a fun game, you get to dress in comfy clothes, have lots of snacks and caffeine. Of course, have the appropriate amount of caffeine for you. Don't ingest any more than you can tolerate. All this is is just a summary of questions about material that you've already heard or that you've already read about. Another thing that I have been practicing when I go into an exam is that I'm going to the test aiming to get a 100. And so if you're studying for a 100, this is going to give you some wiggle room. And by that, I mean you can get X amount of questions wrong, but maybe you can still get an 85 or higher. If you're studying just to pass, on the other hand, and you get to the test site just wanting to pass and do the bare minimum and say you get five questions wrong, those five questions could get you a failing grade. So while it may take a little bit more effort, studying to get the best grade possible, even if you don't get it, which is totally fine, can really help you to maintain a passing grade. In college, retaining 85% of the information is really good. 90% or more is fantastic. But for me at least, I had to remind myself of that. Because back in high school, I'd get a 95 and I'd be really hard on myself for not getting a 100. 
So imagine you have 10 apples and you were a little hungry, so you ate eight apples. That's a lot of apples. You only have two left, one in each hand. Imagine that was all that you missed from a month of lecturing and materials, and you ingested all the rest of that material. That's a lot. So you have to give yourself a little bit of grace. And I know I talked about fear and anxiety being bad, and I don't want to confuse you by saying this, but a little bit of nervousness can be good because the increase in adrenaline that's coming from your sympathetic nervous system can actually sharpen your focus. Too much of it can definitely throw you way off and mess up your hard work, but a little bit of it can kind of make you a little more motivated to do better because you're so highly concentrated. To eliminate any confusion there, I just want to mention that fear, anxiety, and nervousness are commonly just lumped into the same thing. We often use those terms interchangeably, but nervousness is a natural response to something that you're stressed over and it's temporary, and then fear and anxiety go a little bit deeper. So you don't want to be frozen in fear, you don't want to be really, really anxious because that can hinder you, but a little bit of nervousness can sometimes help just increase your focus because you're so heightened and so intensely focused that it can be good for test taking but you just don't want to be scared so that section was all about test taking and how to reduce performance anxiety and now i'm just going to take this in a different direction and talk about some alternative ways to study because studying can be really really helpful if it's done right in a way that is digestible for you but a lot of us tend to just try to reread the textbook and stuff doesn't really sink in so i'm going to list some alternative ways to study instead of just going back through your notes you could listen to a podcast on the topic that you're studying which is really informative and it helps you get a different take on the same information which helps you be a little bit more well-rounded on the subject you can also use google scholar to your advantage and look up articles that are related to the topics that you're being tested on or that you want to understand for lecture and make your own powerpoints summarizing what it is that you've learned or what those main topics are and you can make that fun and creative and interactive because that might encourage you to want to keep studying it if it looks fun and you're having a good time doing it you can then print out diagrams. You could label those diagrams yourself during class or lecture. That's really helpful if you're in any science-based classes. I'm in anatomy and physiology, and I like to draw the specific body parts or the diagrams out by hand because I find that I'm a very spatial learner on top of being an auditory learner. So drawing those things out and visualizing them and then labeling them myself really helps me to remember all of the important things. If you were very creative, you could even make things that you're learning about, like building mini figures when that's applicable. That may not be for everyone, but that could be really fun if it is something you're interested in. You could also go out to a cafe or a park or library with a friend or friends and talk about what you learned, like what I mentioned previously in this episode. Having a really good conversation about material is gonna also help to solidify those concepts for you mentally. This next one is something that I do all the time, especially with anatomy or any other course that requires you to take in a ton of concepts and knowledge and lots of vocabulary and all these different things that are all connected with each other and you can't forget them because the rest of the semester will keep building on those concepts, is to test yourself with mini quizzes that you can find on the internet that are free before and after class. 
test yourself before so that you can see what types of things might be challenging. Those are the things you can jot down and pay extra special attention to when you're note taking. And then test yourself after to see how well you retained it. Most of the things that we learn the first time around are not going to stick. It's the second time and the third time and the fourth time and so on that your brain is going to have strong connections between topics and that's what's going to help you to remember things better. One of my favorite online resources for taking quizzes on content before and after lecture is Purpose Games. I'm not affiliated with Purpose Games, but I will definitely say that I use this website all the time and it has quizzes on anything that you need. Just search it up in the search bar and a bunch of results will pop up. They're short and they're clear and concise and they really help you to pinpoint the important things, especially with a class like anatomy. So it's purposegames.com. That's really, really great. You can also use Quizlet and test yourself using the test resource or by doing flashcards. And if you're in science classes, there's Registered Nurse RN. That's also a great website. And those are just a few out of an endless amount of different online resources and websites that offer free quizzes to take on content. A lot of college websites will sometimes have those. Encyclopedia Britannica, I know, has some. And another reason online quizzes are so great is that in today's day and age, everybody has access to the internet all the time, pretty much. So these quizzes are very, very accessible to you. And I don't want to say that this next one is a hack because it's really not a surprise or a secret. Some professors tell you to do this straight up and just most kids don't do it or you don't have time to, is to just read the textbook before you go to class or lecture. Read the chapter that you know is next in the syllabus or that's next in your schedule and familiarize yourself with that material. That way, by the time you're going to lecture and you're hearing your teacher explain it, it's the second time you've heard that information. So it'll be more likely to be retained in your memory bank. So I hope that you guys will try some of those techniques out because they are really, really helpful. I'm speaking from experience there. Now that we've discussed studying techniques and methods, the last section of this episode is a list of 10 things that you can do outside of the classroom that will improve your mental and physical health and can be essential to having a well-rounded life. And these are also not in any special order. Number one, exercise. There are so many benefits to staying active that talking about them all would probably necessitate its own podcast episode. So I'll just mention just a few brief things about exercise is that it can help to regulate stress hormones and trigger the release of mood boosting neurotransmitters and it can improve your mental health by helping your brain cope better with stress. It also helps you sleep better and improves your memory. Number two is prayer or meditation, but I'm a Christian so coming at this from a Christian perspective, I would pray because not only is that practicing mindfulness, that's also helping me to decompress by, first of all, highlighting what things are bothering me, and it's really good to get those off your chest. And two, if you're also a believer like me, you know that giving your worries to God is like taking rocks out of a backpack that you've been carrying around all day long. When you feel anxious or overwhelmed, bring your worries to God and ask Him for help. The Bible promises that He cares for you and He will give you peace. He loves you and he's never going to forsake you. Even if it feels like you're overwhelmed or you're sinking, he is there for you. And if you are Christian or you're religious, then that is a very real comfort. Number three, creating. Whatever your creative outlet is, whether it's crocheting or painting, drawing or sculpting, writing, the list goes on. We should try to be creative whenever we can. 
creativity can help us to motivate ourselves and others to learn by linking creativity with intrinsic motivation that can spark curiosity. And being creative also helps us to become better problem solvers because you're approaching situations from different angles. That helps you to deal with uncertainty and adaptability is very important in the academic realm. This also helps you to develop emotionally because it's a way of outward expression and you can connect to others through creative activities. So being creative is very, very important and it's very freeing for the mind. Number four is to engage in musical activity, whether this is listening to music, singing, or playing an instrument. And there are a lot of really great benefits that come with playing an instrument. Some of which of those benefits include robust gains in memory, verbal fluency, and a faster processing speed when it comes to processing information. It could also help with planning ability and other cognitive functions. And it's also never too late to start playing an instrument. You can pick up a new instrument at any point in your life. Number five is to take walks outdoors and really just spend time outside as being outside can improve your mental and physical health. In my previous podcast episode about color psychology, I talked about how the color green is such a natural stress remover. And being around a lot of greenery outdoors is a really fast way to lower your stress, lower your blood pressure and your heart rate, and that encourages physical activity and good mental health because there are a lot of things that the brain associates with the color green and there's just a natural feeling of calmness that can arise when you're around plants in nature. Number six sounds like it's simple, but it really is important, and that is to eat food. Well, the caffeine for breakfast, the no lunch, and the piece of gum during lecture in the afternoon is for some reason a universal part about being a student. It really shouldn't be. You need to eat because your brain needs nourishment. I need to remind myself of this too because I'm guilty of skipping lunch and just going off coffee until dinner time. That's not good. Making time to nourish your body is so crucial to doing well in school because your body needs nutrients to function and to function well. And you want to be able to function well in class so you can do the best that you can do. Number seven is to learn a new skill or find a new hobby. And we've talked about how all of these different hobbies can improve your mental functioning, your memory retention, other cognitive processes. So it's really great to have something that you're interested in that can be fun and stress relieving that you do outside of school. Number eight is to get lots of sunlight when you can because we know that sunlight is great for your circadian rhythms. And number nine is to pretend that you like a class. And I know that this one's not gonna be easy for everybody. And I know that if you hate a class, you hate it. But when you like something, it's going to cause you to pay a little bit more attention to it. And if you hate something, you'll never be motivated to care about it. But if your GPA depends on a class that you might really strongly dislike, try your best to make it a little bit more interesting for yourself. Maybe do some little Jeopardy games with your friends on the topics, watch a movie that relates to it or just almost bribe yourself into enjoying the class or making some part of it interesting because then it at least won't feel like a drag when you have to go there and then eventually be tested on that material. And number 10 is to take advantage of your professor's office hours or set up meetings with your teachers after school. 
because doing this causes a special connection to form between you and your teacher. They get to know you, you get to know them, you'll feel a lot more comfortable in their class, and usually the majority of the time, unless you get one bad teacher, they really love to answer your questions because that shows that you're interested and that you're motivated to do well in that course. And if they didn't love the material, they wouldn't be dedicating so much of their time wanting to teach students about these topics. So most of them really do love to help you. They want to talk about it with you and they want to see that you're interested. Plus, you'll have some great professionals to write you some letters of recommendation when it comes time for those. So with that, I'm going to conclude this episode of The Essentials. I hope that you guys enjoyed this and found some of this content to be interesting for you. And I hope that you can apply it to your lives, if applicable. Um, But a lot of these tips were really helpful for me. So I hope that you're able to take advantage of them. And I hope that you guys have a great week, weekend, whenever you're listening to this, and that you all have good health. Remember to also check out the other great shows that are here in the BMG network, the Ken Burns Show, the Adrian Ross Show, the Patriotic American Citizen, that's the Pac-Man podcast, that's my dad's podcast, because there's something there for everyone.